This podcast of Snap Judgment is supported by MailChimp. More than 3 million people and businesses use MailChimp to design and send email newsletters. MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. Okay, so I was born in big city Detroit, right? And I was happy there. But then my parents decided that we had to leave. And we moved to a little place out in the country. There were trees and birds and frogs and fish and rabbits and critters running all over the place. All these animals, even from day one, they terrified me. One day, we're getting ready to go to church. And I looked out of the window, down the hill to the neighbor's house. The house, it looked like it was moving, shimmering. What? I got right up on the window with my sharp little kid eyes. I saw that the house, the house, it wasn't moving. No, 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 no. There was something on the house, something alive, some sort of Insect swarms surrounded the house like an angry fist. Mama! My mother came quick. I pointed down the hill, and when she said, Lord have mercy, I knew it was serious. I kind of whispered, Oh no! And it was like the swarm heard me. It released the house and dived into the air like little fingers of dark smoke. We watched as a black line extended from the neighbor's house outward. I could see the enemy clearly now. Bees. Hundreds of thousands, black and yellow flying. The swarm sensed its prey, calibrated its direction, and flew directly toward our little cottage. The menace was coming for us. We ran around the house, shutting all the windows and doors and openings. And then, they arrived. Sheets of bees clung to the window, plunging the house into almost darkness. Bees on top of buzzing layer of bees on top of bees. We tried, but there was no keeping them out of the house. Somehow they pressed through sealed windows, through the chimney, maybe they tunneled up through the ground, I don't know, but the swarm outside the house became the swarm inside the house. And we fled, my brother, my mother, my father, and me, to the bathroom, all of us stuffing wadded pieces of toilet paper underneath the door to keep the creatures out. And I was yelling, and my brother was yelling, what the hell, 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 what the hell? And we were not allowed to say hell, but what the hell was going on? My father, right? He got into quarterback mode. And he started laying out the plan. I don't see any other way. I don't, boys. I'm gonna need you to be men right now. 
Cause, cause we are gonna have to run for it. Run for it? That's right. When I open this door, open the door. When I open this door, I want you to run straight for the car. For any reason, you cannot stop. Run straight for the car. Do you understand me? You can hear the swarm outside growing louder. Do you understand me? All right, Pops. We understand. One, two, three. Like a shot, we ran out of the bathroom, through the swarm, waving hands like lunatics past the front door to the car. The car blanketed in bees. We opened the car door, heard my father rev the engine, and gunned the car down the driveway, all of us screaming all the while. I went to church that day without any shoes and without my clip-on tie. And later, when we snuck back toward our house, it was deserted with just a few bees bumping drunkenly against the walls. I looked my parents in the eye and I spoke very plainly. Mom, Dad, we gotta move back to Detroit. On Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present The Great Outdoors. The Great Outdoors. Amazing stories from Mother Nature. My name is Glenn Washington. Welcome, because this is Snap Judgment. Now then, our first storyteller on today's show is a gentleman by the name of Tom Rhodes. He's one of the hardest working men in show business. He kills it on MTV, Comedy Central, and gigs all over the planet. But you know, even a hardworking performer needs a break sometime. And where better to unwind than the great outdoors? I had my own late night talk show on Dutch television for two years. And if that was not fortuitous enough, when that ended, the same network let me be a presenter on a travel program. I got to do a highlight on St. Petersburg, Russia, the Champagne region of France, I went to Peru, and my Dutch TV producers told me that if I got certified diving while I was in Thailand, on my next assignment, they would send me to the Caribbean. They told me to go to this resort on Koh Phi Phi and the Phi Phi Islands, four hours out into the Bay of Bengal, these beautiful, stunning islands. So I went to sign up for this five-day diving class. It was run by this guy named Philippe from Montpellier, France. He had all these jailhouse homemade tattoos up and down his overly tanned leather skin and a yellow Speedo on that revealed a little too much. And he had a rat ponytail. And you could smell the criminal past on this guy. There was a a reason why he was hiding out in the islands of Thailand. And he was the diving instructor. 
So on the morning of my first dive, I sat with a very hungover Philippe, and he went through the hand signals. Doing a motion across your throat, this means I cannot breathe. And then a fist on the chest, and this means I have a love of air. A love of air? Okay, what the guy was trying to say is this means I am low of air. The place wasn't very professional, if you know what I'm saying. And he keeps yelling at me about buoyancy and learning buoyancy. Professional divers uh, never use their hands. You've got on your vest two buttons, one to increase the air or decrease the air, and then you can stay perfectly horizontal, and that is buoyancy, the perfect balance of perfect measures. So you're paired up into twos. You have your diving buddy, and you're constantly checking on your buddy. Are you okay, buddy? So the diving class was this British couple from London, Mark and Mara. And they had lived in Paris for five years, and they spoke fluent French. And then the other person in the class was this very attractive French girl, Helene, from Bordeaux. And oh my God, I fell completely head over heels in love with this girl. She was cute, and I'm like, this is so perfect. She's gonna be my buddy, we're gonna fall in love, and I'm just picturing a, a life in the future living in Bordeaux. Then we drive to the coast and throw tennis balls to our shaggy dog and kiss in the sea air. But as it turned out, Philippe also had a crush on Helene and his underwater flirting was outrageous. We'd go down and every day he would push me aside. He'd put his arm around her and he's showing her pretty plankton and plants. And I was left back by myself, 20, 30 feet behind everybody, just going as slow as I possibly could. But it was absolutely stunning. School of hundreds of silver fish that went over my head. And I'll never forget how beautiful that was. So every day we dive, and in the afternoons, we would stop on some little secluded beach and have lunch. And this was my one chance to talk to Helene and be charming and funny. And Helene once was pulling her bottoms out of her bottom, and I said to her, hey, are you going to the movies? And she said, movies? And I said, yeah, I saw you picking your seat. It's a third grade classic but she had never heard it. And she laughed and thought it was hilarious. Uh, and Philippe was not pleased at all that I was making any inroads. Like the typical alpha male silverback gorilla, any chance he got, he would put me down and insult me. We had all talked during lunch and said what we did for a living and our jobs. He keeps calling me Mr. Television. Is this good enough for you, Mr. Television? Please, Mr. Television, with the equipment. And over the course of three or four days, you know, things are starting to get pretty tense between he and I. On the morning that I almost died, he really was pushing it too far. Uh, he was saying something to me and I said, listen, Philippe, I have to tell you, man, you're making me feel uncomfortable. I have to trust you out there. And he goes, oh, Mr. American, have I hurt your feelings? Maybe the Al-Qaeda has asked me to leave your body in the ocean today. And Mark from London lost his mind. He stood up in the boat and he goes, you are out of order, sir. We finally arrived after all this argument and tension to our diving spot. One person couldn't go diving that day. One of the tanks was bad. And then the Thai boat captain had hit the tank with a hammer or a shoe or something. And then it was decided that everybody could go diving, that everything was fine. 
In retrospect, it was Russian roulette with the tanks, and I got the bad one. So we go down into the ocean, and just like every other day, Philippe pushes me aside and takes Helene, and I'm left way off in the back behind everybody. And we're down there, and all of a sudden, I start breathing in water. Apparently there was a problem with one of the O-rings and water's getting in the tubes. And I've done this, this is the fifth day now. I'm familiar with the equipment. If you get water in your mouth, you just push this button in front of your mouth and it shoots out the sides. But I'm hitting this button and nothing's happening. And then I grab my spare respirator, I'm hitting the thing, and it's the same thing. I'm breathing in water and your lungs don't want water. I'm in a panic and I look up to the top, to the surface. Anybody who knows anything about diving, it's the most dangerous thing in the world to shoot straight up to the top. You can get the bends and it affects your blood and you have to be in decompression chambers for days. I'm not exactly sure what happens, but it isn't pretty. And I knew you're not supposed to do that. So I look and Philippe is about 25, 30 feet in front of me and I swim as fast as I can to this guy and I grabbed his little rat ponytail and I spun him around and who'd have thought I ever would have got to use the I cannot breathe signal and Philippe looked me right in the eyes and he grabbed his spare respirator and he really seemed to be taking his sweet slow time getting it to my mouth by the time it got to my mouth I had held my breath for so long. By the time it hit my mouth, I went <clears throat> I can't even recreate the sound. It was this death bark that came out of my lower intestines. It was this sound of somebody dying and it came out of me. And I really thought this was the last moment of my life, watching little bubbles go up in front of this scumbag's face. He glided me to the top and I survived. And then later, when we got back to shore, he invited me to go walk into the village and have a beer with him. And he's being really nice to me. I don't know if he felt bad about the situation or maybe he was just trying to cover his butt in case he got in trouble. He showed me a picture of the wife and child that he abandoned back in France and we're talking and he said, well, that was very scary today. And I said, listen, Philippe, I just want you to know that today I learned the meaning of true buoyancy. Because when you said that thing this morning about Al-Qaeda, I wanted you to die. I wanted you dead right then, at that moment. And then later that afternoon, you saved my life, and all is forgiven. And that is true buoyancy, the perfect balance of perfect measures. The ocean levels are rising. The glaciers are melting. You know what that means? Everything's going swimmingly. Tom Rhodes, he's an American comedian, actor, host, and travel writer. We'll have a link to the world of Tom Rhodes and his one-man comedy special at snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Renzo Gorio. Now, you know that when I was a kid, we had our own 80 acres of wilderness to call our own. And when I first got there, I followed one of the neighbor girls on a trail right through the woods, and I remember her saying, did you see that? That was a curtain and warbler. But I didn't see anything. Did you see that? That's a Michigan rattler. Uh, there's a gray frog. 
Still, I saw nothing, nothing but leaves. And I thought maybe she was fooling with me. But the longer we lived there, and the more times I went into the woods, the more the woods became alive. The frogs, the birds, the snakes, they were just waiting until I could see them. We want you to stick right there and wait as well, because when Snap Judgment returns, we're going bear hunting. We're hanging by our fingertips from the side of a mountain, and someone, I'm not at liberty to say who, but someone is gonna get naked. When Snap Judgment, the great outdoors episode continues. Stay tuned. Hey, Snappers, thanks for listening. You know, there are lots of other NPR podcasts we think you might dig. For word games, puzzles, trivia of all sorts, check out Ask Me Another. It's a rambunctious hour, blending brain teasers with comedy and music. Find Ask Me Another on iTunes under podcast. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the great outdoors episode. Now, it's one of those ideas that defines our national character. A man, alone, armed with nothing but a buck knife, his loyal dog makes his way out into the wilderness. It's huge, it's a mythic idea. But believe me when I say, the wild, it plays no favorites. I think he froze his feet. His feet were just giant, swollen, and black. That's Randy Brown describing what he and his hunting buddy Fred saw after opening Randy's cabin deep in the wilderness of interior Alaska. He was so skinny. There was just no meat on his bones at all. And he had starved. Randy and Fred found this man dead, 120 miles from the nearest tiny town deep in the subarctic forest. This is where they lived. There were three of us that were really living out there during that first couple of years. We all agreed that if we ever got into that situation where we were starving out, that we would hope that the others would eat us. Weren't gonna kill the other guy, but if he died, nothing wrong with eating him. When we found him there, we saw how emaciated he was. And I turned to Fred and I says, I think I'm gonna stick with Beaver. <laughs> and uh, he's going like, yep, yep, we're not gonna eat this guy. Crazy situations, but I mean, we had gone through these scenarios. We knew we were living right on the edge. Randy had moved from Santa Fe to Fairbanks, Alaska with a dream of living totally off the land in the wildest country possible. When he was 19, he hitchhiked as far up the road as he could to the Yukon River. He got a couple of big huskies, and with his rifle, he walked off into the wilderness. So I went out in 1976. Randy built a cabin, and he planned to live off only what he could find and make. I spent several months at a time 
all by myself. It's trapping and hunting. And I sewed all my own winter clothes, caribou pants and caribou parka. He made candles out of moose fat, wove his own snowshoes. He ate only meat. Caribou meat or moose meat? Those are your choices. Cold water or warm water. But that was about it. Up that close to the Arctic Circle, it doesn't get dark at all, all summer, and in winter. It gets so that the sun only comes up over the horizon for a short period, a dawn and then a, immediately another dusk. It was regularly 40 below when Randy went out to check his trap lines in winter. But he got to living so minimally that he stopped even bringing a tent. I just filled a long fire and then you just be laying three or four feet away from the fire on a caribou hide. He lived all year round in conditions that most people can barely survive in. He got really good at it. But late one summer, when Randy was out hunting with his friend Seymour, his skills were about to be tested. I had gone on a trip with this guy, Seymour. At one point, we're looking up the river, we see a bear head, and a bear is swimming the river. It was a big bear, the kind that most people run from. But for Randy and Seymour, this bear meant dinner. They wanted that bear. They needed that bear. Unfortunately, one of our dogs, he ended up spotting this bear. So he takes off running up the bank, and all five dogs roared up the bank. We're sitting there going, oh, this is not good. This is not good. We want to get the meat, and we can't shoot him in the water because he's going to sink. There could be dogs drowning, bear could gut them and kill them. The dogs are his pack animals, his protectors, his best friends. And they are swimming wildly towards a very large and angry bear. Randy and Seymour have a moment to decide. Finally, Seymour says, you got the 243, get in front. And so I'm like, okay, let's do it. And we jump into the boat and took off from shore. The bear is turning his head. He's not happy, he's snorting a little bit. We're paddling full speed in this canoe. We're traveling fast, so I'm immediately up on him. And I shoot him right in the back of the head, grabbed him right above the tail, and he had enough fur that I was able to hold on. And it turns out we had a 250-pound cinnamon-faced black bear. An August bear is a great eating piece of meat. Randy could find everything he needed out there. Everything except the one thing he needed most. So all winter long, I mean, I'd look for tracks, you know, of single women, but I never found any. So, <laughs> yeah, but so here I was, late teens, early 20s at that point, and no women, no women out there. I didn't, I truly, I didn't know how to proceed. I didn't know what to do. So he built a raft, floated two days downriver, and hitchhiked 150 miles into Fairbanks. Then came the hard part. I came into Fairbanks and went up to the university and they had a bulletin board and I put a note on the bulletin board. Trapper living out in the woods, wanting a woman. If you're interested, write me. And I got no response. <laughs> I got no response. So Randy tried a more direct approach. You know, when I would meet, single women, I asked them if they wanted to go and live out in the woods. And, of course, everyone said no. But Randy kept on like this for a while. He'd travel into town, meet a woman his age, they'd get to talking, he'd ask the woman to move in with him, and she would say, This guy's out of his mind. Karen first met Randy at the Solstice Festival in Fairbanks. 
She said no, but... But I was interested enough that I did get his address. And we started having these communications by mail. Karen sent a letter off on a bush plane and then up the dirt highway to Randy's address, General Delivery Eagle. Only when someone canoed past Randy's cabin did he finally get the letter. So Randy figured he'd speed up the get-to-know-you process and give Karen a call. He harnessed the sled dogs and mushed into town, a several-day trip, to get to the one village phone. I know for you it was an expression of my love or lust or whatever. Do you remember how (laughs) close it was? That's what you told me at the time was 67 below. That's so cold that if you throw a bucket of water into the air, it doesn't just freeze, it vaporizes instantly. It was very impressive. 67 below really stuck. It's like, you know, well, this is dedication. Randy's dedication paid off. Karen and Randy got married the next year on the Yukon River. They found a big spruce grove and built a little cabin where they started their life together. And I remember our third grade teacher, Mrs. Miller, asking what we were going to do when we grew up, and I told her I was going to live in a log cabin in the woods. So I did. I just didn't realize when I got to my log cabin in the woods, it might be 110 miles from the nearest village. They built their cabin on land owned by the Doyon people. And many of the local Doyon really liked having Karen and Randy out there. They liked that. We were carrying on some of the traditional knowledge that had been passed on to Randy through some of the elders there. In 1983, they had their first son, Jedediah, and then Gabe in 1987. Their nearest neighbors lived 20 miles away. Sometimes it took days to get to anyone's house, but everyone knew each other. They had these big parties on the equinox where everyone brought meat to share, They stayed at these gatherings, sometimes for days. You were far away from other people, but I never felt disconnected. I never doubted that if I mushed 20 miles upriver, I was going to be welcomed in and taken care of. I find being alone isn't lonely. Being lonely is if you're in a crowd of people that doesn't need you or want you. Randy still went out and tended to their fur traps, and the whole family packed up the toboggan and mushed into town once a year to trade fur for bullets. The rest of the year, we didn't use money at all. Didn't see it, didn't carry it, not ever, the whole rest of the year. Out there, I felt like I was king of the world. I could do anything, be out in any weather, build cabins and canoes and get meat and fish, anything. If the whole world fell apart and we were up on the Candic River, We knew we could get what we needed to survive. They lived 10 years like this, with only the passing of the seasons marking big changes in their lives. But in 1990... Doyon got a New York City lawyer. Even if the Doyon liked that Karen and Randy carried on traditional practices for all those years, the New York City lawyer had other concerns. They could get hurt. They could sue. So he sent us a very nasty cease and desist all activities letter. In 1991, they were forced out of their cabin in the woods. It was really sad. Randy had picked my wedding bouquet. One of the gals at our wedding had pressed them between glass, and we put that window 
in this door. So the last thing I did was take that and bring that with us. They moved to Fairbanks, a city of over 30,000 people. They had cars and grocery stores and neighbors right down the road. And they were lonely, they were exhausted, and they were broke. And I got into Fairbanks where all of a sudden you had rent to pay every month. I tell you what, I just, uh, I felt pretty helpless. When he applied for his first federal job, he had this one little paragraph, I've lived and worked in the woods for the last 15 years. I've done everything necessary for subsistence. I didn't have the skills that anybody wanted to pay any money for. It was a tough time. A lot tougher than any year out in the woods. We got broken into and they took every one of Randy's tools. I guess I prefer nature's dangers. Randy and Karen moved to town 20 years ago. They still have their dogs, but they're just pets. Still have an outhouse, but they also have a bathroom. They still have canoes, but those are just for fun now. And now I have my log cabin in the woods right on the edge of Fairbanks. <laughs> Much bigger log cabin. You know, there's different phases of life. We moved in and I don't know. I don't think we're gonna ever move back out. You remember when I said that, I was hoping when Jed and Gabe got to be 18, we wanted to be able to send them off with a big gun, a 22, and an axe. We figured if we could do that, they'd be able to take care of themselves out there. I don't believe I ever quite said that. No, you didn't, I did. You always told me that I was dreaming. We'd like to thank Randy Brown and his wife, Karen, for welcoming us into their lives. That story was produced by Snap Judgment's own Julia DeWitt. Now, it's about to get serious. Pack your bug spray, check the river for leeches. The Snap Judgment, the great outdoors episode, returns in just a moment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the great outdoors episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and on this episode, Snap tries very hard to tick Mother Nature off. Now, did you ever want to be by yourself? To get away from everybody and their needs and their wants and their whining and their appointments and stuff for just a little while? Well, you know what we say on Snap Judgment. Be careful what you wish for. Snap's Anna Sussman brings us the tale. Four days alone. Completely alone. Nothing but the sky, the mountains, and the sound of your own voice. 
That's what Charlie Hench planned. I call it a trans solo trek of the Sierra Nevada. He'd hike eight miles a day, make camp, and start over again in the morning. He'd have no one to answer to, no one to worry about, no one to look out for but himself. Well, I enjoy my solitude, and that was part of it. I like backpacking because you're very self-reliant. Your sole purpose is to move. I don't mind being alone at all. And he found solitude on his first night. There it was. The first night, I camped uh, right along the creek there. It was just gorgeous. Burbling Brook, you're still in the trees. You're alone. Very peaceful, very peaceful. Two days into his trip, the mountains were blanketed by an early snowfall. The snow muted the quiet forest, and Charlie was more alone than ever. But he kept climbing. That was probably a mistake. Probably the first mistake is not checking the weather closer. He didn't realize that the snow cover obscured the trail, and he began to walk in the wrong direction. I didn't pull on my compass or anything, because I'm thinking I know where I'm going. I had no idea I was on the wrong path. And up there, you can rock hop easy up there. So Charlie was hopping from rock to snowy rock when his foot slipped on the granite. I don't remember tripping, sailing through the air or anything. I just remember coming to with a broken wrist and a bump on the right side of my head. So I really rang my bell. I'm sure I got concussed. I'm hurt, I'm sitting there, and I did not know where I was. And, but after, I don't know how long, 10 or 15 minutes, I finally realized what I was doing, where I was. I was doing, you know, a trans-solo Sierra Nevada hike, and it occurred to me, you dummy, you know, you're all, you should not have done it alone. He had fallen down a steep rock wall, and it landed on a ledge with no way off. I'm on a rock about the size of a Cadillac car hood. Literally no bigger than that. So at this point, I'm, I'm hurt, cold, and wet, and didn't see that I could go down or up. So at that point, I'm resigned. In fact, I'm going to wait this out. I lost my glasses in that fall, my compass, and my map. So with his wrist broken and his spine cracked, Charlie managed to cobble together a little camp on the rock ledge, and he waited listening for the sounds of rescue. I did hear some helicopters searching for me. I'm thinking, this is great, they're gonna find me. Because I still thought I was near the correct location. And so I'm hearing the choppers. And I'm hearing for a long time, and I just figure they're doing their little grid search and they're gonna find me. But because he wasn't on the trail, the search crew couldn't find him. And then I stopped hearing the choppers. I'm figuring they stopped looking for me. He spent four days clinging to this rock ledge, waiting and hoping. He ran out of fuel, and he ran out of food. So that was real bad. So Charlie stopped working to survive and started preparing to die. On this piece of cardboard, I wrote how I'm going (laughs) to divvy up my belongings. Who gets what? My bank account goes here, my four-wheel drive truck goes to my brother, and just, just stupid stuff. Is that crazy or what? So, and then, that I am so very sorry, 
of all the grief I caused everyone. <sighs> Full moon, it was actually a gorgeous night. I look forward to lying down and going to sleep. That's what I, you know, I don't know if it was gonna be sleep forever or what, but at that point I just wanted to lay down. But his friends weren't ready to let him go. They organized teams of search parties. They hiked in from both ends of the trail and directed helicopters from sunup to sundown. And word spread that Charlie was missing. One guy left a note on the desk of a friend of a friend, a guy named Dave Graw, and he owned his own plane. And um, I just sort of left it on my desk and just found myself reading it um, you know, through the day and bringing it home, I think, and then thinking about it uh, that night. Here's what you should know about Dave Graw. 40 years ago, his brother got lost in the Sierras. He ended up getting onto a snowbank, and then you know, later basically woke up after being knocked out with a big gash on the side of his leg and, and stuff, and had to walk back about 10 miles. Dave kept thinking about that place, the ledge where his brother had fallen 40 years ago. I was, you know, always been sort of fascinated by this um, place that he was hurt. You know, as I couldn't sleep, um, I think I was, you know, prompted that I, I, I had to do something. You know, I had to do something. There was almost nothing else I could do except go get in my plane and go fly and look at that place. And so that's what I did. In the morning, Dave Graw got in his plane and flew to that spot the spot he's been watching for 40 years. Flew up, you know, west towards the mountains. Thought, well, I'll just take a look at, you know, where my brother had his accident again. And as I fly by, I look out the, the passenger side window. And, and then I see a plane above me. This is the first plane I've seen above me. There's a guy standing on a snow-covered ledge, you know, waving a stick at me with a red cloth tied to it. And on my broken fishing pole, I have a little red stuff sack. I'm waving it. Of course, I can't see it on my glasses on. And I don't know if he's seen me or not person was clearly getting my attention and I figured it had to be, you know, Charlie. And I'm waving my paw, wave my paw. I think just to be sure that he knew that I saw him, I waggled my wings. And, and he gives me the wing dip, you know. And I can't tell you how that felt. Dave radioed a search chopper and told them where to find Charlie. And they plucked him off a cliff in a rescue grab that ranked 9.9 .9 on a difficulty scale of 10. One thing I, I need to say that I think is a, an important part of, of Charlie's story is that, you know, so many of his friends made great sacrifices to do everything that they could to, you know, help Charlie, you know, hiking into the backcountry. And I think that says a lot about, you know, who Charlie is and how important he is to his friends. When he got home, Charlie's friends threw him a party. It's very ironic that, yeah, that I'm planning this solo hike to get away from everybody. And what happens? All my friends have to bail me out. It's just so humbling that people would uh, do that for me. Big thanks to Charlie Hinch Stay safe, brother. Stay safe. We know it's hard out there in the great outdoors. You know, you're venturing into the wilderness. You have to beware of bears, or wolves, or snakes. There's predators around every tree. In our next story, a story about a family trip 
There's a whole new force in the wilderness that nothing can prepare you for. We take you now to a live Snap Salon where Snap superstar storyteller James Judd breaks it down. Mr. James Judd. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, my name is James. My name is James. Hi. So uh, thank you very much to Snap Judgment for having me here tonight. I am just thrilled to be here, to be part of the party. F Ira Glass. Because I'm listening to Snap Judgment. Could you edit that out, please? I really want to be on This American Life. I really do. So badly, I always want it so badly. 1975, age 10, the Russian River, Healdsburg, California. It's family fun day on the river. We all know, my father, my mother, my slightly older sister than me, we all know that there is no way that this family fun day on the river is gonna turn out well. Not for us, not for the Judds. We are not good at doing things together, but we are great at one thing, and that's faking family fun in public. Still, I'm excited. Because even though I'm 10 and I'm almost grown, I still love fairy tales. And the Russian River winds through one of the densest forests in all of California. There has to be magic here. Something great is gonna happen to me. Something incredible. A talking bear, a flying rabbit, a troll. Imagine a troll. Oh, mighty forest, please just let there be something. Our family arrives at the launch site at 7 a.m. along with several dozen other families. We immediately begin glad-handing and waving at people we barely know. Hey, how's it going? You ready for a great day on the river? You're gonna have the most fun. No, you are, no, you are. A man with a whistle and a big bass on his hat is giving a safety demonstration, and my mother has been talking to a down-the-street neighbor. She comes running up to my father and she says, Barbara Johnson says that there is a whole colony of nudies somewhere on this river, and we're going to paddle right through it. I don't think we should go. I don't want you-know-who to get any funny ideas. This is directed at me. Recently, I have been slapped with a number of unflattering labels. It started with my third grade teacher who wrote on my report card, James is very sarcastic. He needs to work on his sarcasm. I said, what's to work on, honey? I think I got it. So now my mother is trying to keep me from any person, place, or thing she thinks might give me a funny idea. Back at the launch site, my mother says, imagine a whole colony of nudies. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody but me. I nervously wait for my father's response. He says, I'm not driving all the way home until we paddle down this filthy Stinking, good-for-nothing river! Hooray! 
and soon our canoe is launched. Two hot, sweaty, buggy, mosquito-filled hours later, our canoe is just drifting sideways. We are the last canoe on the river. And now, with nobody to see us, well, we just give up trying. My father is sitting behind me. He tries to paddle a little bit, but he gets winded very easily, and he's always clutching his chest and going, my heart! But he does this all the time, so we just ignore him. My sister is sitting right in front of me. She has brown hair and pasty skin and one ambition in life, to have blonde hair and a tan. She's covered herself in lemon juice and cooking oil. I can hear her skin crackling in the heat. My mother is sitting at the front of the canoe and every now and then she'll say, Nudie, don't look. And of course we all look where she's looking and the canoe teeters and it looks like it's gonna fall over and then she'll say, just a bird, just a bird. Well, it could have been a nudie, better safe than sorry. My father says, the reason why this canoe isn't moving is because it's too heavy. And he grabs our cooler with our ice and our fresh water and our sandwiches and he takes it and he dumps it into the river. And then he takes the cooler and he pushes it under the water until it sinks. And he says, now everybody grab a paddle and let's get out of here. While we struggle onward, I'm becoming despondent. I mean, by the time we find the nudies, they will probably have put on their clothes and gone home. It's faint when we first hear it, the sound of the drums. But then it grows steadily louder. And then in come the tambourines and the maracas. My mother nervously suggests that maybe there's a high school marching band practicing somewhere in the woods. But I know it's not true. This is a jungle beat. It's the beat of the nudies. <laughs> My mother says, stop this canoe, but we can't stop because now a current is pointing us around a bank where 50 men and women are dancing spastically on the beach. And they're all young and totally naked. My mother goes, close your eyes. My father says, oh wow. My sister goes, oh my gosh, they're so tanned. <laughs> I stand up in the canoe, I say, thank you, mighty forest, and boom, we're in the water. <laughs> the nudies on the beach stop dancing, they look at us, they see we've capsized, and they come running into the water to rescue us. <laughs> My mother says, go back, we're fine. She, she goes down for the second time. We're fine, good, just go back, go back. But they come, they surround us, they turn over the canoe, they grab our paddles, they, our stuff is floating in the water, and this one guy with long hair and a goatee looks at me and he goes, hey, let's get in that canoe and get some of that water out. And then he reaches across the canoe, and he hoists himself up, and pow, his hairy backside is right in my eyes. I say, oh my gosh, this is so much better than fighting a troll. I find an, uh, an unbroken jar with a lid at the bottom of the river and I scoop up some rocks and some river water and floating bits of stuff and I hand it to the naked guy in the canoe and then I pull myself into it and he goes, wow, way cool river jar, man. Now let's paddle this canoe to the beach. And he hands me a paddle and me and the naked guy, we paddle the canoe to the beach and everybody cheers, yay! The rest of my family staggers up behind me. Well, my memory of the rest of that day goes blank after this moment. <laughs> I know that somehow we managed to get back to our car and drive through the city and into suburbia and home in silence. 
I take my jar of river water and I put it up on the bookshelf where it's the last thing I see before I turn off my light at night. And I look into the, to the rocks and the water and the floating bits of stuff and I fall quickly to sleep with a head full of funny ideas. The remarkable James Judd, ladies and gentlemen. James was the force behind his popular one-man show, Seven Sins. His new solo work, Funny Stories, is now playing across the country. Please go see it. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Mark Ristich. It's that time. Pull up your parka. We've arrived at base camp. (laughs) What? You want more snap with your hot chocolate? Well, full episodes available right now at snapjudgment.org. And join Snap Nation on Facebook, Snap Judgment, Twitter, Snap Judgment ORG. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Android, any way you want it. We've got it right there waiting for you. Snap was produced by myself and a seasoned band of hardened outdoors people. Would you please put your hands together for Grizzly Adams himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf, big bad wolf. Pat Mercedes Miller brings the, the beats to the great outdoors. La, 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 la. La, la, la. Julia DeWitt goes where no woman has ever gone before. Anna Sussman can skin a deer in 10 minutes flat. Stephanie Fu wears stilettos in the snow. Renzo Gorio drinks his beer with one of those little umbrellas sticking out. And Will Urbina eats hamburgers made from bear meat. When you were a kid, did you ever go out to the woods, climb a tree, get up to the top and wonder what it would be like to live there? <laughs> no? Well, that never happened to us either, and it certainly didn't happen to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Many thanks to the CPB. Youth speaks because it's easier than wandering about in the snow trying to find firewood. I mean, youth speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. Youthspeaks.org. PRX, the public radio exchange, trading media to the public in exchange for salt, beans, and a month's supply of kibble for the dogs. PRX.org. Now, you know this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could call the newspapers and tell them, You're going out into the wilderness to live on nothing but the bounty of nature. You could tell them that. And when they publish a picture of you coming out of a 7-Eleven with a Slurpee in one hand and a bag of Cheetos in the other, you could tell them about the sudden appearance of your mysterious twin brother, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. NPR. 